Here's to five miserable months on the wagon and all the irreparable harm that it's caused me. Things going, Mr. Torrance. Things could be better, Lloyd. Lifers Podcast with Scott Lucas, Gabe Rodriguez, and Ben Reiser. And now, here's Scott, Gabe, and Ben. February commence. <laughs> Shh, just let it let it happen. <laughs> oh. It's good. It is really, really good. Do you want to mention what exactly you're drinking so we might get sponsorship? No. Sponsorships. <laughs> Haven't you heard that... Uh, Corporate overlords are done. Yeah, they're all on the they're all on the chopping block. Can you just imagine Gabe doing live spots for us once or twice an episode? Speaking of that, I I knew you guys were uh, going to play that whole thing of me trying to do the intro last, and that was pretty good. It was pretty funny to listen to myself, even the second time when I listened to it. Well, it was good. It was good. I, uh, it always surprises me that you don't know what's happening when it's happening. Well, I said it was happening. I said, you guys are going to use this whole thing, aren't you? And you yeah, said, but you like after we had gotten about 10 <laughs> minutes in and you'd given me enough material that, <laughs> that I knew it was going to work. How are you, Gabe? Are you okay? I'm worried about you, man. Why is that? Oh, people are piling on your boy, Joe Rogan. You, you, you're going you're gonna to come through this? That's not my boy, first of all. Could have fooled us. No. You, you said you were a huge fan, and his was the only podcast you listened to. Who you know, you're th- one of the people that Neil Young is trying to save. Who has three hours to uh, listen to a podcast every day? Every day. Me. Who has three minutes? <laughs> I mean, it's not that much different than, like, uh, morning radio, Right. Morning radio is like in four or five hour blocks. Yeah, but people listen to it on their way to work or when they're showering or whatever, and then they do their bit. They do their thing. I'm pretty sure that's what people are doing when they listen to Joe Rogan. That and taking, you know, Invector Men or whatever that Ivermectin. Ivermectin. Horse Ivermectin. Com is. Ivermectin. Yeah. 
So are you really upset about this whole thing? No. I'm, I read today that failure is leaving Spotify. I know. And I saw that. And be- Belly, Belly is throwing, throwing their hat in the ring. Yeah, but <clears throat> really, you know, they pay peanuts, don't right? And they don't pay a whole lot to artists anyway. So that would be a bigger cause for me, for them to pay their artists better. Oh, Not yeah. their artists, but... Yeah, but don't you that- see, that's what this is, is Neil Young starting the worker revolt. So he has one reason for doing it. And, and by the way, Neil Young isn't just doing it for that one reason. That's the main reason right now, but he's never really been down with Spotify in the first place. So it's all part of a thing. This, is the, this was the last straw for him. This is a straw that broke... What, what's that animal that the straws break the back of? Whatever, it doesn't matter. But this is the straw that broke the camel's back for Neil Young. And uh, that's what people are losing sight of. Neil Young's had it. And this is stuff that Neil Young's been doing his entire career. He does not fucking take the bullshit. He does what he wants. You know, there's this whole idea that that we don't have power. You know, it's like Neil Young does it. And it's like, well, Neil Young's huge. You know, he, he can, you know, get away with it. Like even Joni Mitchell. And then, and then I was reading about failure and I was reading about belly and I saw their monthly listeners and we have more monthly listeners than them combined. So for us to leave wouldn't be nothing, you know? So, I mean, I, I, I honestly, I'm, you know, I've got a T-shirt. I've got a poster in, you know, our practice space that says, what would Neil Young do? This is what Neil Young would do, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's kind of like, I, I am honestly thinking about this. Like, I, would I be a hypocrite not to do this? Do you know what I mean? I don't know. It's a tough one. It's, it's a tough one. It's a pickle, George. It is a pickle. But is it a pickle? Is it just such an obvious thing to do i mean then what we, we take our our little podcast here off of spotify we would we, we're not going to make those uh, spotify playlists anymore that's that's for goddamn sure well that's what that i was going to say we have a choice to make and uh, yeah okay i guess, I guess we made. are the other platforms any better apple maybe not maybe not but are they and you know uh that's up to me to do some research right now you know i mean is this is Spotify any worse than fucking Facebook? You know, I mean, it, it's all these things like all these so-called services. They're just, you know, they've gotten bigger. They've gotten more powerful. They've gotten richer since the beginning of the pandemic. What what incentive do they have to tell the truth or what incentive do they have to to, you know, not uh, spread misinformation so people stay home more and more and use their fucking services you know i don't know well where's the rest of the artists though the big name artists that are gonna pull the plug on spotify it can't just I, be neil young and joni mitchell i don't you kind of i see this thing as it's, it's starting to happen i see this worker revolt starting to happen like you know these people have been getting fucked for years because it's kind of like oh well it's spotify that's j- just the way it works but is it the way it works? And this idea that none of us have power, that we're all small artists, it's not true. And if we all band together, you know, I mean, 
Neil Young is not the bad guy. Neil, like Spotify is the fucking bad guy, and I refuse to listen to anybody trying to make Neil Young the bad guy. Like he's pushing censorship or anything like that. It's ridiculous. Spotify's the bad guy. Joe Rogan's the bad guy. These are the Goliaths in this fucking thing. And, uh, and I have some real thinking to do. And so I'm kind of asking your opinion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you know anything about the different streaming services like Apple and Amazon and whatever the fuck else? And if they have different royalty rates for artists than Spotify, do they? I, I know that Spotify song? is the worst. For, uh, for, for right. Apple is still, like, still bad, but you know, Spotify is the worst. Um, but you know, I, I'm I'm also not, you know, I know that that this is a situation where, you know, people aren't buying the music. You know, I'm not expecting to be paid what I'd be paying if people were buying the tracks. I know they're just streaming them. You know, I don't even really know what my royalty rate is when something gets played on the radio. You know, I don't know how much better it is, and that's kind of what this is to me. That's the way I look at it is that when something is streamed on Apple Music or Spotify, it's it's the same as getting played on the radio. So, you know. Yeah, I think radio pays better. I would hope so. Okay, what are you reading there? Well. I thought you had something. I, I thought did. you had something you were ready to I, go. I'm trying to make sure that these are current. But I'm seeing that radio, larger commercial radio stations pay 12 cents per play. Oh. Which is a fuck ton more than it's these online. Good. Yeah, online companies are now paying set somewhere between seventeen cents and twenty two cents for every one hundred times a song is streamed. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge difference between regular over the air radio and these fucking online it's big streaming difference. services. Yeah. Big difference. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it just. If if Spotify can afford to pay Joe Rogan a hundred million bucks, then they're fucking making too much money and not mm. paying artists what they should get. That's right. That's right. They're, they're, they're certainly not poor, you know. And this Ooh. cry poor argument certainly doesn't work. Yeah, you know, all these things happen, and 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 the the quality level sucks, you know, and uh, you know, and who's really getting rich? I mean, it's, it's these, no one has ever said the music business was ever artist friendly. It's always there to fuck the artist, but they, you know, we've talked about this before. They keep fucking them even harder and harder and they keep moving the line and maybe this is it. Maybe this is really, really exciting. And this is something that you want to be a part of. And, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I don't. I don't. And, 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 and Gabe makes up a, uh, brings up a good point. Like, is there anywhere that's better? Anywhere else? You know? I'm not a defender of Joe Rogan, but mm-hmm. if you got slapped with some backlash about what you talked about on your podcast, like he has. Like what? You know, you're going to say the same thing. You know, I'm just a dude talking on, on a podcast. What's the big deal? Yeah, but does that sound like. Does that sound sincere to you, or does that sound like, you know, bullshit? It sounds like uh, bullshit to me. 
If Scott got paid a hundred million bucks, I think he'd just say, see ya. Like, okay, I'm shutting down operations. Yeah. <laughs> Plus the guy doesn't know the difference between Ricky Lee Jones and Joni Mitchell. Fuck that guy. Well, I, sometimes I don't think Ricky Lee Jones knows either. <laughs> I mean, I'm not defending Daryl Rogan. I never seen his fucking show. I, I remember you know, him it being bums a jerk me off out from because them. I mean, how am I how am I going to watch old episodes of news radio? It's uh, it, it, I'm getting it from all sides on this. this oh, what thing. about Fear Factor? I mean, that's the real tragedy in all of this. I didn't watch Fear Factor. In fact, I could see this day coming the day he started hosting Fear Factor. Gabe, your thoughts? I think I think there's actually some movement on what's happening right now, and it's pretty early in the stages of, you know, what people are talking about, what people are going to do with their feet or their ears, you know. Are they going to leave Spotify or not? But we're here in the middle of it because we do a podcast and you're an artist and releasing music all the time. So right. it's, it's, it's very early, but it could be in the midst of uh, something big here. Who knows? It's interesting. And you know, like we, you know, like I, I, I don't think we can ignore it uh, and maybe it'll go away in a week, but I don't know. I mean, this is pretty interesting to me and uh, I would be remiss to not bring it up. So if anybody listening to us, has a problem with it and thinks I'm a hypocrite for even talking about it, fuck you. Um, <laughs> and thanks for listening. What else? <laughs> I watched the first two episodes of Wolf Like Me. Oh. Speaking of scabs, speaking of breaking the picket line. Yeah. How was it, buddy? It's not really for me. but i will say that the queens of the stone age song that opens the show is one of my favorites don't do it what do you what you're um, you don't want me to spoil stuff for you at this point am i supposed to guess what song it is um i'll guess it's uh go with the flow no and i've told you that this is one of my songs that i like but i'll tell you into the hollow no and but the reason i like this song in the face is the dumbest part of it uh, is because to me it sounds exactly like Wang Chung. Hmm. This dude Jack Hughes from Wang Chung. Now Wang Chung, their first album was H U A N G Chung, and then somebody convinced them to change the H U to a W. Who? Spotify. That's their record company. I don't fucking know. But that first album, that's H U A N G Chung, is not. Is much more guitar based and not dancey, like dance hall days. I had a very good friend who was really into Wang Chung. She really liked the, um, in high school, uh, mm-hmm. she really liked the To Live and Die in LA soundtrack. That's a great soundtrack. She would constantly try to, to pull me in the Wang Chung direction. And you weren't going. I wasn't having it any more then than I am now. Oh, by the way, it's If I Had a Tail is the song that sounds like Wang Chung. Oh, great. All right, what? now I really don't want to watch thing? this. I might. Great. You never know. Okay. When the, well, now that you've made your... All right, don't say anything about it. I'll watch right. it when I okay. have the time, and then we'll figure it out. Right. So we've got one vote, one emphatic yes from Gabe, and one uh, not for me, no, from Ben. So Gabe, do you know who we have on our show today? 
Uh, you gave me the name, but you didn't give me any background, and I had to do a, a look up on Facebook to see if I knew him. What'd you come up with? I don't believe I do, but uh, the picture you sent an hour ago, Rick, it <laughs> matches the guy on Facebook, so okay. I'm guessing it's him, Mr. Dave Brooks, Late Night Dave. Our good old buddy, Late Night Dave, yes, Mr. Dave Brooks. So he'll be on the show. He's He's quite a lifer, quite a New York lifer. Um, and uh, maybe we can learn a thing or two. Okay, but do you want to tell the story of how you met? I don't know this. So who is late night? Or, or are we just going to find out while we We'll just find out. Okay. Uh, I see uh, second week in a row, no shakes. Come on, man. I thought we were going to have a whole new era. No. Gabe. I, I can eat a shake almost every day if I wanted to, but. I'd probably pay the price. Now, is it eat or drink? Because I felt like kind of an asshole when I was saying eat a shake the other day. I think it's eat. No, I think it's drink. If you but, I mean, use we a were... spoon, you're eating it. And if you use a straw, which Gabe was doing, it's drinking. Yeah. But he was also talking about it as a meal, which got me into the eating thing. Has it started snowing where you're at there, Ben? You guys got some snow today, but we didn't. We're too far. Mm, we haven't gotten any yet. Oh, really? Mm, oh, what's coming? No, I think it's. I'm. I'm, I'm psyched. I'm gonna pour myself another drink. Watch the uh, the the British version of The Shining, and have myself a snowstorm. Speaking of interesting versions, uh, I was watching the TV version the other day of. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. And it's just the edit they're talking about. It's yes, because they had to cut so much out of it for television that they had to add a bunch of extra scenes. And there's this great scene in there where um, Spicoli is talking about hanging out with Mick Jagger and getting a pick, a guitar pick from Mick Jagger. There's a bunch of like really cool scenes. And apparently, like the Phoebe Cates character is a, a sex expert on everything and. All, all these different girls come to her for advice. Uh, but there's a scene, Ben. Um, they're in a record store. Remember the, hey, where he's giving them all the, the dating tips and like, yeah. hey, Debbie, isn't this place great? You know what the name of that record store is? It's the um, Licorice Pizza? Yes. How come, you, how come nobody told me? How come you didn't I tell me that? I read something early on that that Licorice Pizza was the name of a record store when um, What's-His-Face was growing up. So It was a chain of record stores, kind of yeah. like JR's Music was here in the Chicago area. Yeah, interesting that it doesn't appear in the movie itself, though. Yeah, that's... That's that PTA for you. That's him. Z- zagging left when you want him to zig right. But I heard you, or read on your Facebook thing, that you came to another idea about licorice pizza that you now accept it as, as third great. time was the charm what are you what are you gonna do so you saw it a third time yes i'm not sitting around going maybe i was wrong without any proof you know i gotta go back for some proof i'm just impressed that you sat through a movie two times and didn't like it and then was like fuck it i'm going again you know unlike gabe uh I think movies are worth investigating and uh, I don't go fuck this right away 
five minutes into a movie just because, <laughs> you know, I'm not on its wavelength. And I figure, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, is, he's, he's worth the effort. He, he's given me a lot. He deserves my loyalty. At least, a little bit. At least. Do you have Someone an example of something that clicked into place for you on that third viewing? Um, yes, I, I, I think that it does have momentum. I, I don't think it's as, it's, it's, uh, you know, and a lot of people that have called it a hangout movie, I think they're wrong. I, I think it does have storytelling momentum. And it's very much to me like I used to think Inherent Vice didn't make any sense. And then I saw it, it got high. And I watched it, and it made total sense. Now, I don't know if it's because if I was high or not, but suddenly I was like, oh, yeah, it, it makes sense. The mystery's been solved, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't like the big sleep. There was, right. it was solved. Right. So that was the thing. I was like, oh, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's not, he's not phoning it in. This is what he wants to do. So that made a big difference to me. Cool. Are you watching this thing, or did you watch this thing on Apple TV, The Shriek Next Door, with Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd? Mm, no, but I want to. Yeah, it's stressing me out. It, it's good if you want to be stressed out. I want to talk to Gabe about um, physical graffiti one of these days. I want to have a serious conversation with you about this, All right, Gabe, because I, re- I really think you're, you're doing yourself a disservice. I might be. You might be I, right on I, that. I, I, uh, hey, everybody. It's Dave Brooks. What's up, guys? How are you? Dave, what you doing? You look good. It's all good. Thanks. So do you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah, we wanted to yeah. get you on here for a while. Well, right on. I'm very happy to be here. So, And I owe you a congratulations. I'm sorry I couldn't make it. We missed um, you. Yeah, we did miss you. I was very, very upset about that. Um, the whole pandemic, you know... I mean, we all know the uh, impact it's had on the entertainment industry, you know, and for me, you know, not only playing music, but my other source of income is uh, as an audio engineer, mixing music. So there were no shows. Yeah, I had zero income. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's also messed with us coming to New York. I mean, we haven't seen you in, in a while. No, it's been bad all around, and of course, sitting around the house, I've done nothing but get fat, so. You don't oh look God. fat. Oh, that's because I'm shooting from, like, I aimed the camera, so it's only, like, here up. Okay, yeah. good. That's what, we, that's what we were all doing. <laughs> I mean, I could stand up, and you'd be like, holy shit. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's okay. You can sit down. Thanks. Where, where are you working these days? Are you doing church? Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, well, there's a church. I work at a, what's now called Palladium Times Square. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the Nokia Theater when it first opened back in 2005, and then it became Best Buy Theater and then PlayStation Theater, and now <laughs> uh, that was all under AEG's ownership, and now we're independently owned. We're under new ownership. How do you feel about that? And uh, Well, it's too soon to tell. Yeah. I mean, they, they new owners took over at the end of 2019. Um, and the shutdown hit in March of 2020, so they never got a chance to. Uh, they took. They actually took possession of the theater in February of 2020. So they just, you know, they first opened in September of this year. Yeah. So it's still too soon to tell. It's kind of nice being independently owned and not under uh, the corporate thumb. Right. 
How many uh, venues downtown are, does a and still have control over? I mean, did they get a lot of them? Yeah, AG and Live Nation wage war um, in New York constantly. Uh, they merged with Bowery Presents, mm-hmm. I think, in 2017 or somewhere in there. And that gave them control of uh, several other venues, uh, most notably Terminal 5 and uh, Webster Hall. Yeah. So um, it did not give them Bowery Ballroom. That stayed in the hands of Michael Swear. No, I, I, didn't, I don't know if I knew that. Yeah, Mike kept... Uh, he left Bowery Presents some time ago, and in a breakup, he kept he held on to uh, Webster Hall. And, I'm sorry, um, Bowery Ball. Bowery, yeah, <laughs> and Mercury Lounge. I love both those places, so I'm glad. Great, two great rooms. I'm very glad they are uh, not under the uh, umbrella of, of Bowery Presents. And AG was not that bad to work for. I have to admit. Uh, I got treated a lot better than some of my counterparts at Live Nation did. Yeah. So I don't have a whole lot of bad things to say about AEG. So you were born in New York. You grew born up. and raised. Yep. Yeah. So you've seen what? you've seen the entire music scene change how many times? One thousand? I can't count. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I mean, I growing up, my dad was a nightclub owner in Harlem. Wow. Um, and that's you know probably where the bug you know I got the bug right. What uh, was the name of that club? The Club Baron. It was on 132nd Street and Lenox Avenue. Well, I mean, and it was a you, it was a jazz and R and B club. Did you grow up in Harlem? Yeah, I grew up on 135th Street in Madison Avenue. <laughs> oh man! Nice. In uh, the Riverton Houses, which was kind of upscale, they were Harlem's answer to. Uh, Stuyvesant Town. Uh-huh. Uh, back in the 60s, you know, MetLife owned Stuyvesant Town. And in the 60s, MetLife would not rent to black people. So they built Riverton in Harlem, which is an exact duplicate. <laughs> and uh, we lived, I was born in the Bronx. Um, I don't remember those years too much. So I moved to Riverton, I guess I was about three or four. Uh-huh. And grew up there. My dad had a number of jobs. Um like a lot of parents, but the one that stands out most to me was his time as owner of the Club Baron. How old were you when you started hanging out at that club? Oh, my God. Uh, let's see. We moved out of Riverton, and I was 13, so I had to be 9 or 10, 8, eight 9, 10, somewhere in there. Uh-huh. I mean, my brother and I, he's four years younger. We're, we were latchkey kids. You know, um, my mom worked two jobs, so it was kind of dad's responsibility to come home and make sure that my brother and I had gotten in from school and uh, had done our homework and he kind of showed up when he was able to and he'd come in and be like did you uh did you do your homework and I would roll my eyes and lie and I'd be like yeah I did it and he'd take me out to the club what are some stories about hanging out at that club I mean what um, the club was uh it was a R&B and jazz club so uh artists like uh Mahalia Jackson and wow. Aretha Franklin, Arthur <laughs> Prysock, Wilson Pickett, uh, Sly Stone. Sly and my dad were good friends. Really? And uh, yeah, absolutely. So what was and, Sly uh, like? Sly is a character. Yeah. 
He is the coolest guy around. He is the nicest guy, but he's also very... He's sly, and he operates on his own time frame, and he operates in his own way, and he could care less whether you like it or not. Yeah. Did you see Summer of Soul? And uh, I did not, no. What fascinated, I, I to... what fascinated me about that was, like, it seemed like he was, like, you know, kind of like a like a prince figure, you know, like he was Absolutely. in control of everything. But, like, he, he'd be running around, and he wasn't doing any of the singing. Like, everybody else was doing the stuff. And he would have all these people and feature them, and it seemed like... So I'm just kind of wondering what kind of guy he was like. I can't get my head around it. Uh, you know, when you say he was kind of like a prince figure, I mean that's kind of a, a good description. Uh, he was, you know, he was the uh, he he was the ringmaster. Mm-hmm. You know, he put the show together and he ran the show, and uh, he let the artists, you know, kind of run free. Yeah, and and do their things. Um, he worked with artists that people had never heard of. He worked with artists that, you know, people knew. Um, it was, you know, George Clinton was a regular. Uh-huh. And uh, somebody also worked with, you know, people like Tracy Austin and uh, James Ingram. And these are, you know, just the names that I can remember, you know, being bantered around the club. I can't even, you know, remember these people, although they apparently remember me. Oh, yeah? <laughs> so, what happened one of my you? one of my favorite stories uh, that I like to tell a lot was uh, I was doing sound at I think we were still Nokia Theater at the time, mm-hmm. and it was uh, Quincy Jones' seventy fifth birthday party. ASCAP mm-hmm. had thrown it was throwing this big party, and uh, they had given him a lifetime achievement award. And one of the rules, all these performers, one of the rules was everybody was to do one song, and nobody was to make any speeches. Mm-hmm. So everybody would incorporate their speech into the song. Mm-hmm. You know, and James Ingram and Tracy Austin and, you know, s- several others. And Tony Bennett did six songs. <laughs> yeah, because who's, who's going to tell Tony Bennett he's got to get off the stage? I would think somebody there would have told him that. Yeah, no, nobody's telling him that. Tony Bennett could have done 25 songs if he wanted to. And um, Quincy Jones, later on, he came up and he's making his acceptance speech and thanking everybody and he says you know he's talking about all these people he's worked with and he uh you know started tracy austin was 16 when he started working with her and so on and he says even the sound guy in the back there he doesn't remember me but i used to bounce him on my knee at his daddy's club wow (laughs) yeah and people are taking pictures and i'm like i'm trying to work here guys you know, wait, get get my good side <laughs> that must have been mind-blowing and felt uh, great it did you know um it's happened a couple of times uh there was an incident with aretha franklin uh you didn't do, remember meeting aretha franklin no i remember she was a regular at the house okay um and she was you know she'd be in the club all the time and uh years later we're doing a show. This was only a few years before she passed away, so not long ago. And um, if you know anything about Aretha Franklin, she does not believe in technology. <laughs> she will not get on an airplane. Oh, really? Yeah, she she would not fly. It was buses and boats everywhere. Ah, okay. <laughs> and um, when she does a show, she doesn't travel with a band. She hired. She used to hire local musicians, union musicians everywhere. 
and they would get the charts and they would be told to this is learn these songs and so on right and uh she had this guy that worked with her freddie i can't remember freddie's last name but freddie's as old as the hills and he'd been with her since uh, the beginning at the, as he would tell the story and freddie's job was you would uh she didn't come to soundcheck so freddie would record soundcheck on a boom box i'm not kidding on a you know cassette deck boom box right and he would take it back to her hotel or back you know to the dressing room if she was in the venue and uh I was in the dressing room one time watching her listen. It was pretty incredible because she would listen to it and she'd sit there and make that Aretha face, you know, and she'd say, third violin is flat. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and I like, I can't even hear three violins. It's, you know, right. like this cassette. Anyway, she was did, had done this show and the last song, um, she was going to sing to a track because they hadn't gotten the charts to the musicians. And Freddie handed me, like I said, you know, there were no thumb drives in Aretha's camp, no CDs even. Right. Uh, it was on uh, DAT. When's the oh. last time? When's the last time anybody saw a DAT? I've got a couple in my bedroom, <laughs> but that's about it. Yeah. And uh, but I had I had found a DAT player. We had one. So I and uh, Freddie hands me the wrong track. He handed me the radio edit, and she didn't sing, and she kind of hummed along and so on and Freddie was terrified he's like I'm going to get fired and she's furious and this and that and after the show I said well you know what Freddie tell tell Miss Franklin that I did it that I'm the one that screwed up because I'm a you know I'm a union employee she's going to complain but nothing's really going to happen to me and he did Uh and he we're striking the stage and he came out and he said Dave Miss Franklin want to see you (laughs) And I was like, you didn't have to throw me all the way under the bus. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. But uh, I went back in the dressing room, and she is sitting there, and she's got this look on her face like she is going to leap out of that chair and rip my head off. And uh, so I put my my big butt-kissing lips on, and... You know, I said, well, Miss Franklin, we had a little technical issue out at front of house, but, you know, you handled it like only a professional of your caliber and a musician with your pedigree right. can handle it. Right. And uh, I said, and I want to I thank you for the Coca-Cola. And she looked at me. She said, Coca-Cola? I said, well, I guess I was about nine years old in my father's nightclub, and you were performing, and I... Uh, was there during sound check or at the bar and you bought me a coca-cola <laughs> and she, i told her my dad's club and she smacked her lips as she does you know it's uh-huh. just oh man you're teddy's kid no wonder you <laughs> fucked up it's like your daddy was a fuck up and you're a fuck up too it's like but she had a big smile on her face when she right. said it so yeah oh. um but you know one of the things that i do remember from being at the club so often was uh, it wasn't uncommon to see, you know, a lot of rock and rollers in the club. Yeah. You know, um, I guess, you know, working on their, on their blues vibe. Yeah. You know, right. and, you know, you'd see, you know, cats like Todd Rundgren and Steven Tyler and so on. And, you know, so as I grew up and started going to clubs on my own, I kind of started to make the connection. Right. Yeah. You know, growing up in New York in the 70s, nobody checked IDs, so... 
it was very easy to sneak into the bottom line and the mud club and all of those places. I was always tall for my age, so as long as I didn't act like an ass, nobody cared. Right, right, right. So you were like drawn to like the rock scene, or was it the punk scene? What what, what was? It was a uh, it was a little of both. I mean, you know, bands like um, the Ramones and so on. They were in my age bracket. You know, they weren't that much older. Yeah. So it was very easy to make a connection with them. Uh, my friend Ben, uh, who's one of my best friends, and we were in our very first band together ever, and we're still best friends. But I mean, he what was and the I name was of the band? Stained Glass. Okay, it's pretty good. And uh, we were doing like you know Judas Priest covers and stuff like that. But and ben you didn't and I, call it Stained Glass. Well, I think that's where Stained Glass came from. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, Ben and I saw Blondie at, at Max's Kansas City when they, oh, when they were breaking. Oh, my God. You know, and remember thinking to ourselves, like, that ah, Debbie Harry is hot, and we actually have a shot at her. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> right, and I mean, we were, you know, 14, 15. Oh, um, my God. But, you know, that was the attitude. And because, you know, it was very easy to go to clubs, you, you make friends very quickly in the club scene and that becomes you know an integral part of your life I mean there were no cell phones there was no internet it was you'd go out and you'd run into your buddies at Max's and you walk down to Continental it was a short walk uh huh you know or uh you know uh Gildersleeves and CBGB's were a block apart so what's Gildersleeves I I don't know if I know that place Gildersleeves was a was a was a punk club a punk rock club and a rock and roll club on uh, 3rd Street and Bowery. It's where, you know where Bowery Electric is now? Mm -hmm. It was right next door to Bowery Electric. Yeah. And um, it was a great club. So who were you seeing there? So, uh, I, you know, we'd see all manner of bands, names that I can't even remember, you know, long gone. Right. Um, we always went to a Ramones show. If the Ramones were at CBGB's, your, um, that was so was CB's the first place you saw the Ramones play? Yeah, it was the first and the only place I saw. I might have seen them at Coney Island High, but I can't remember. Um, we just smoked a lot of pot too. Uh huh. That's good. And and uh, it was great, you know. And we would. It's pretty weak back then, right? It was pretty weak, but you know, we Ben had some access to some stuff. I don't know where he got it from, but we would just laugh our asses off all day long. Right. You know, and. Uh, you know, I was always tall and old-looking, so I could almost always get beer at the delis. <laughs> you know, nobody ever questioned us. The liquor stores were a little bit harder. So if Ramones were your shit, what was next? Where did you go after that? Um, I had, well, you know, before the Ramones, I had seen Led Zeppelin. Oh, um, I started hold the phone. I started playing drums in the sixth grade. So uh -huh. I was about eleven years old or so. And this is before uh, or after. This you is saw a Zeppelin. year. This is a year after I saw Zeppelin. Okay. Um, it's and I saw. I wanted to uh, go see Led Zeppelin. My dad didn't really like rock and roll a lot. Uh -huh. He used to call it faggoty white boy music. <laughs> I, I <laughs> kid you not. I, I kid you not. Um, and uh, I'm pretty sure Sly had convinced him to. 
take me to see Led Zeppelin. Oh, yeah? All right. Um, and so I did. And I yeah. saw John Bonham, and that was that. Yo. I mean, and what tour was that? Do you remember? It was, sure. It was uh, July 20, 29th, 1973. Okay. So the song remains the same. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, and I know the date because... You know, Song Remains the Same was filmed at those three shows right. at the Garden, the 27th, the 28th, and the 29th. Yeah. Um, so are you in that movie? Have you ever spotted yourself? No. No. Okay. No. And I, I wouldn't know. And I just, I know it was a Sunday because, you know, Dad, that was probably the only night that my dad could get away from the club. So your dad um, went with you? To My dad went with me, yeah. Took me to see Led Zeppelin, and he didn't like it. But I, I was blown away. Wow! By it, and uh, the next year, my school started this uh, comprehensive music program, and we had guitar classes and trumpet classes and every instrument, and it was a drum class. And I had spent the last year banging on kitchen pots and pans and anything that would make noise. So obviously, I went to the drum class. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, we were all learning the same songs and we were going to come together at the end and form an orchestra. And so the very first songs I learned to play on the drums uh, were uh, the Empire State March, which I can still play note for note. And, and do you know that one? And, no. No? Okay. <laughs> I'm sure I've got some sheet music around here. All right, so. Okay, cool. <laughs> and uh, Girl from Ipanema. All right. Yeah, or that Bossa Ask Nova Ask me if beat. I know that one. I know yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah, right. So I started out playing that, and I had this drum teacher. My first teacher was a guy named Charlie Simmons, who played drums. He was a jazz drummer. He played. He was in New York playing uh, in the uh, orchestra, the Broadway production of The Wiz. Okay. And uh, he quickly left... And we got a second guy named Tim Kennedy, who was great. And Tim would not let us play any rock and roll, and he would not let us play anything in 4-4, uh-huh. and he would not <laughs> let us play match grip. We had to play traditional. Okay, yep. Okay, which was great, but I had seen Led Zeppelin. Right. So I knew better, mm-hmm. as I believed. Right. And yeah. um, But we didn't, and we still were not, you know... Uh, given a lot of rock and roll to play, but some friends of mine and I split away from our classes and formed our own little band that never had a name or whatever, and we were going to, you know, uh, jailbreak the recital Mm -hmm. and play our own thing, (laughs) which we did. Oh, you Uh, did? We did. We did a a cover of uh, Duke Ellington's Take the A Train. was easily the worst rendition ever performed by anyone anywhere right um but that started uh you know i started to pay more attention to to uh things in school i you know the school i went to um was this pretty hip private school called the ethical culture school you know and, um they needed it was the 60s so they needed black students and my parents saw an opportunity to get my brother and I a great education and get us away from public school. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went, but, uh, you know, kids in my school, Julian Lennon went to that school 
And I'd come out of class at three o'clock, and there's Dad standing with John Lennon. Holy you know, shit. with all the parents, you know, picking up their kids. I didn't know who John Lennon was, and you know, or care. Yeah, I just, you know, why do I have to walk with this kid I don't like? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like Julian, huh? You know, I I have very little memory uh, okay. of him. I do remember uh, the walks uptown because uh, my dad obviously knew who John Lennon was, or whatever. And I don't know, if, you know, if they were friends or anything, or if it was anything more than a couple of parents picking up their kids. Wow. Was he living at the... Uh, uh, yeah, they were living at the Dakota on 72nd wow. Street. Dude, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. So, so I, that, you know, that became things. Um, the punk scene kind of started to talk to me because it was cool and it was loud and it was, it was rebellious, you know. Um right. Did you feel the need to like sort of put away your Zeppelin records because of it, or were you just like, no. I'm just going to put it all together? I kind of put it all together. Yeah. Um, if the, you know, if you the music that moves me now, even today, is always the louder, faster stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think that was you know part of the the New York punk influence. Yeah, and you'd see bands, you know, that there were countless bands at the time you know in new york i mean that's where i guess you know new, this great reputation that new york supposedly is this great music town i mean at one point it was right well what kind of bands are there that 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 aren't in the like the legs of neil book like that you know you always dug uh there was a there was a metal band called voltage mm -hmm. back in the 70s i think i saw them at max's kansas city uh, in the 80s, I saw a band called Soaked at Coney Island High, which was uh, former members of Trickster. Oh, okay. All right. Um, and they were doing something a little less, a little less hair bandy. A little and it more. was good? It was pretty it good? Was, it was better than Trickster. Gabe, you writing this down? Gabe's and, uh, actually a Trickster fan. I, 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 am, I am too. <laughs> Go ahead, Gabe. What were you going to say? What the heck was their song? They had one song on MTV. It was huge for a couple weeks, and then that was it. What was that song? It wasn't a "Give It to Me Good," was it? Oh no, it was, I don't think so. No, that was later. I'll find it. Um, I'll find it. Yeah, but "Soaked" was a uh, PJ and and Stevie Brown. Interesting from Trickster, and uh, I saw them at uh, Coney Island High. Um, good lord. I'm getting old now. I can't remember uh, band names or so. And obviously, uh, like I said, we saw Blondie. Uh, by that time, you know, by the set, by the time I was going out regularly, bands like Kiss had blown up already. Yeah. Yeah. But and Johnny was, Thunders is hanging know, around. Johnny Thunders was hanging around. I never saw the Heartbreakers. No, dude. And, that uh, record is so good. Yeah, that's one of the one of the bands that i uh regret not uh not having seen yeah um was uh was johnny thunders and the heartbreakers um i you know by that time ben and i i guess were playing uh doing judas priest covers we'd seen judas priest uh we saw rush at the palladium mm-hmm on the, I forgot, was that the Permanent Waves tour? So that was 79 or 80. 
Yeah. I think. And the Palladium was, you know, it was a great place to see shows. It was just large enough to attract these big names, but it was still small enough to uh, have an intimate feel to it. I think, you know, it held 3,500. Yeah. So people go, 3,500, that's a lot. And I'm like, not when you come from New York. Right. <laughs> you Asshole. Know. I'm so, I, I, I'm, you know, you're on the subway with 3,500 yeah. people. So are you working in clubs, doing sound at this point? or, or what uh, Not yet. I mean, I've kind of been hanging around my dad's club when I was younger. I'd seen soundboards and so on. There was actually, uh, when I graduated high school, I was, uh, I'd gotten a gig. I was a few years later. I was an EMT, and I was driving ambulances. Jesus, what was that like? And, uh. You don't realize how much that sucks out of you until you stop doing it. Fuck. Yeah, but uh, that was my day gig for for a long time. Yeah. And then I started uh, doing sound a lot because we were by this time I was playing shows in a in a bands like Stained Class, mm-hmm. and uh, I played in a in a blues band with some friends called Box of Nothing. Okay. Um, and people would always say, well, the drums didn't sound good. So I kind of started to learn sound um, because I wanted it to sound better. And I kind of wanted, I, from there I started to realize that there were, I went to a lot of shows that didn't sound really good. Right. And uh, I wanted to, to uh, I wanted music to sound good. And uh, my, you know, when I started Mix and sound. I mean, one of my mentors, Night Bob, uh, was working at Don Hills, and Night Bob was Aerosmith's longtime front of house engineer, and he had worked for all these big bands. And everybody knew who he was, and so I was kind of latched on to him. Right. Um, and as were several others, and we all, you know, guys like Pete Oslin, uh, Metal Pete, we used to call him. Uh-huh. You know, and. Uh, Bruce Edwards and so on. We all kind of cut our teeth working at the same clubs, uh, CBs and Continental. Uh, Bruce was a regular at uh, at Don Hills. So if Night Bob wasn't at Don Hills, then you got Bruce mixing. And you know, Bob would be hanging out. Don was an impresario in the music business. Yeah. So... If you played at Don's, you would always have people there to see you, you know, or they were there to see somebody. Right. Place to hang out, be seen, all that crap. Right. I remember uh, hanging out with uh, Nico McBrain and a couple of guys from Iron Maiden at Don's. Hold on. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. talking. They were there there to see um, a band called White Light Motorcade who I believe they're still around in some formation or the other. But uh, Nico was friends with one of them or so on. So Nico was there, and I think Steve and Adrian were there also. And they were hanging out and, you know, super approachable. You walk right up to them and say hey and, you know, say what you got. It was also say hey and say what you got to say and then get the fuck out of there. Right, 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 right. So you weren't hanging with Nico? And so, no, it's not like we were buddy-buddy, you know. Because okay. it seems out. like Nico would hang out. Oh, like, he... He seems a little crazy. He definitely would hang out, and he was hang. The thing was, he was hanging out with everybody. Yeah. 
you know right. every everybody wanted their chance to jump in and say hello so right. you talked for a little while and so on and they didn't really brush you off but the conversation would change a little bit and that was kind of your cue that <laughs> right. we're on to the next guy right right and so on so they weren't rude or anything like that no. you know um so throughout all my time i uh i got to meet a lot of people and uh hang out and get to know a lot of people which only reinforced to me that you know this is what i this is what i need to be doing mm-hmm. um there was a period of time when i stopped playing and uh i listened to my mom really paid attention to uh advancing my ems career mm-hmm. and not playing music and i was miserable yeah <laughs> and, yeah. and, and I, I didn't really know why right and uh i had heard about this place i guess i started playing again here and there and i had heard about this place called the off wall street jam mm-hmm. and this was i'm trying to think of the years it was in the 90s sometime and uh it was the off wall street jam was kind of a uh kind of like a little camp for musicians and it was mostly corporate guys that played music or so on and they didn't have time to form bands so this guy bill bennett who ran it you know you'd walk in and you'd fill out the questionnaire what type of music do you like what instruments do you play uh what you know are your favorite bands and he would match you with like-minded musicians oh uh, that were into the same thing and hopefully you'd form a band and then he'd do like monthly showcases at Red Lion or uh, the, where else? Elbow Room? No, we did play that on our own. Uh, but uh, Bitter End. Oh, the Bitter End was a big one. Huh. And uh, you'd so you'd form a band and you know, you'd get together you could rehearse maybe once a week or so and he ran a studio you know, four or five floors that did this and it, uh, so I started working there, right? Um, where I met uh, a guy named Bruce Hubbard, uh, who's this, you know, knock kneed, skinny little sh- piece of shit kid, but he had a killer voice. Uh-huh. And so we started a band, and uh, that band, uh, that band was called Strain. And uh, that was the first band that really uh, um, we started touring and like kind of getting outside of our comfort zone. So, I mean, was that weird for you? Because like being in New York, you got to feel like, you know, you know everything, you know, you're in the middle of it all, you know, but like going on tour kind of messes with your head a little bit. Uh, Absolutely. Um, you have to the first i think the first thing that you have to do is you have to get out of your new york mentality because yeah. you just end up pissing everybody off <laughs> yeah, yeah you you walk around uh here we were coming out of this new york music scene and we had hung out with the you know, iron maiden and uh, hung out with the ramones and um a story joy ramone saved my life in my one and only interaction with him we had never met personally um or anything but we all used to hang out in this after hours on fourth street called woody's that ron wood owned oh my god he used to hang out at woody's and uh, sure 
Holy shit. Sure, we used to all hang out at Woody's, and I was in Woody's one night, very, very drunk, and I spilled a beer on a Hell's Angel. (laughs) (laughs) I know where this is going. Yeah. And so while the rest of the Hell's Angels are gathering around and plotting my demise, Uh uh, Joey Ramone walks by. And he just kind of looks at one of the angels, the guy I'd spilled the beer on, and he's like, ah, oh, not this guy, man. He's cool. Uh-huh. And he pats you on the shoulder, and he keeps walking. And the angels <laughs> just kind of let it go. Right. And that was my one and only interaction with Joey Ramone. We had never met before that, and we never talked again after that. And I don't know why he did it, but I'm really glad he did. Maybe he recognized <laughs> you from the shows. I mean, Maybe. You were tall. Maybe. Um, but I'm really glad that he stepped in. Yeah. No, he probably recognized. You. He probably remembered you from the show. So. <laughs> Who's that dude? So, um, yeah. So getting back to you know this thing about you know touring and getting out of your your New York mentality. Once you get past that, it's kind of cool. Uh, we'd play places, and I'd kind of walk around the room, and you'd listen, and you know. Got people to be like, well, what do you want to do, man? You want to go somewhere else? No, I want to hear the New York band. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, bands, when you come out of, you know, throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, I mean, the, the music hotspots were, you know, L.A., Chicago, New York. You know, Atlanta hadn't really become a scene. Most of the South hadn't become a scene. And, you know, we had, a, you know, the, the, the Florida bands like Leonard Skinner and so on, and maybe one or two that came out of Texas but the real rock and roll uh, the rock and the, and the punk rock hot spots were, were the LA, Chicago and New York so when you played in North Carolina or in South Dakota you know um, people kind of paid attention they thought you, you were a big deal yeah which was the next lesson that I learned which was you have to have your shit together yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, so, you seem pretty like open-hearted still about music, and like how how did you navigate through those different scenes and music changing and not get too salty? Do you just like fuck this? I've seen it all. I've done it all. Well, you know, music is artist for the artist, and the fact that other people like it is just a, a happy bonus. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, when I listen to music and I go see bands, and you know, to tell you the truth, there's really not a whole lot of music that I don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, there's stuff that you know I could do without, or is not my favorite. But I would never take anything away from another artist um, because it's they're just out there expressing themselves. It's right. you know, um, so I always look at music that way. I always look at, uh, I see it as an expression of the of the person or people making the music. And who am I to, to judge somebody's emotion, somebody's feelings? You know, this is not, uh, this is how somebody feels. This is not, there's no right or wrong. Right, right. So as, as scenes change, you know, I listen to fans. One of the things that bugs me is I listen to fans talk about uh, an artist has sold out mm-hmm. or this record isn't as good or they got they, they went commercial remember that phrase uh, yep. these guys went commercial right um, 
But what's really happened is, I mean, the artist has grown. We're we're constantly we're humans, so we constantly grow, we constantly change. And for musicians, it's reflected in the music we make. Right. Yeah, and that's not to say that someone is not true to their roots or anything. It just means that there's another influence. Right. You know, it could that. be a bad influence, though. It, it absolutely could be. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, for a lot of musicians, I mean, they'll never admit to it, but if you like it, do you really care if everybody else says it sucks? You're not supposed to. You know, I You're mean, not supposed to. I know we also, you know, in the sense of we got to make a living. Right. And, um, it, that me, that means appealing to you know pub, to the public. Well, I mean, I think even more, Dave, is that it's it's communication. Music is you're communicating, you know, and it's and for most people, it's the only way that they can communicate. And when they feel like what they're saying is falling on deaf ears or people misunderstand them, it can it can hurt. You know I, what I mean? Absolutely, um, it can hurt. It can, you know, it could be the end of a career. It could be the end of a life. Yeah. You know, I mean, I can easily see how it could drive somebody uh, to suicide. You know, yeah. For for most musicians, when you're playing, I mean, we all know when you're standing up there on stage, you're you're naked. You're opening your 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 heart and your soul up. Right. Um, yeah. Most of us are, you know, capable of withstanding some criticism right. in one way or the other, but there are certainly some that can't. Yeah. You know, and there's countless stories of musicians that are, you know, absolutely terrified yeah. of uh, getting up there and doing it, but they didn't, they don't know any other way to communicate, like you said. Yeah. So I, you know, as scenes change and music changes, I just kind of keep that in the back of my mind that, you know, you're witnessing someone's art, someone's emotion or whatever, and I shouldn't be spending too much time judging it. I should just either enjoy it or if I'm not enjoying it, then move on. All right. Right. Sometimes it's not for you. Right. It's a nice way of saying you suck. <laughs> so I, I, I got a bunch of questions on, on a, a little a card okay. from our, our buddy Justine. All right. And uh, she wants to know, yeah. how did you get in charge of building the room of Trash Bar? If that's right. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, I... I uh, had used to stumble in there to drink mm -hmm. and got uh, Aaron and I quickly became friends and he was having some issues with the sound system and I, I one night you know was like I can fix it you know, yeah I did a Spicoli Right, yeah, right, right. I could fix it I know I just watched it the other night <laughs> right and uh now I had to do it. <laughs> right. And uh, so I fixed Get it. Get your dad's tools. Yeah. My dad's yeah. a TV repairman. He's got an yeah. awesome set of tools. Man. Right. Um, but I kind of fixed it, and then I kind of took over doing sound uh, there. And it was for me, it was a lot of fun because it was, you know, I made a few bucks, and I got to drink as much as I possibly could. Which isn't and, a lot. You don't so, drink a lot. No. 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 Not me. I was never face down, you know, being peeled off the floor at Trash Bar 
more than like <laughs> once a week. Right, right. But okay. so that that was my relationship at Trash Fire. That's how that started. So then she wants to know what was your favorite show doing sound of all time. I it doesn't say of all time, but yeah, let's do all of all time. Uh, let's let's. My favorite Trash Bar show was a band called. Um, Oh crap! I just blanked. I'm having a senior moment, nice. and I love this band. Uh, uh, oh, Trickster. Cool. No, wasn't Trickster. Uh, Gabe, did you figure out what that Trickster song was? Don't treat me bad. Don't treat me. I knew, I was gonna say that. <laughs> there you go. What's the band, Dave? Uh, Valiant Thor. Oh, okay. Valiant Thor, which is this great. Oh, uh, somewhere between punk and metal. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> it was a metal band with a with a punk mentality. Mm hmm. And they were from Georgia, I think, or one of the Carolinas, somewhere down there. Right. Whatever. Uh, but they would just roll through, and they would pack the house, and it was loud. And the singer, you know, would take his shirt off, and he had this long beard this great beer belly and he didn't give a fuck and um and they would just own the room that was it valiant thor valiant thor um was one of was one of my favorite trash bar band my favorite band of all time um and i get there's four and i kind of thought this question might pop up so i gave it some i had given it some thought the other day and i think the four bands that influenced me the most that are that are my favorites would be uh, obviously Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to be a big Who fan. Yeah, so Who, um, Van Halen, and the Ramones. Uh-huh. It's are, a good list. I mean, people don't talk about how crazy huge the Who was, like you know, during the seventies anymore. I or, I saw them at the Garden. Right after Keith Moon died, I I didn't get to see Keith Moon. Oh wow! Um, but they were huge. Yeah, they were this massive juggernaut. Right. And uh, an example of just how big they were. Years later, some years ago, I was doing a uh, I was doing sound for a uh, benefit uh, for Music Cares, mm-hmm. uh, and um, Pete Townsend was getting an award for he does a lot of work with people in recovery. Right, and so they had a bunch of artists. Pete and Roger were there. Uh, Zach Starkey was playing drums, mm-hmm. and um, I forgot who was playing bass. Shows you how much I love bass players. Uh-huh. I'll hear about that one later. But uh, um, so they had artists stopping by. These artists, everybody's going to do two Who songs, and. Uh, Joan Jett was scheduled to perform and she showed up uh, while we are doing sound checks and she came right out to the soundboard. Joan and I had known each other for a little while now and I'm, I'm very good friends with her guitar tech and most of her band. Uh-huh. And uh, she said, oh, Dave, a friendly face. I'm, I'm terrified. I'm so happy to see a friendly face. I'm really scared. Right. I said, what are you scared of? First of all, you've been on tour with The Who. It was the summer she was touring with The Who. Right. So like you've been on tour with them. What are you scared about? She's like, Yeah, but now I gotta sing who songs. Right. And I'm fucking terrified and I need to smoke. What song a- was she singing? She did 
Uh, Summertime Blues and Can't okay. Explain. Oh, wow. And she was so good on Can't Explain. Yeah. Um, besides the fact that Roger Daltrey walked off stage. But, I mean, you would have thought the song was written for her. Yeah. Like, she sounded that great on it. I can hear it in her accent. I feel all right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so, before the show, she wanted to go smoke a joint, and she couldn't smoke. You know, the dressing rooms were all occupied by everybody. Yeah. So, I took her to our secret joint smoking spot. And uh, I wasn't planning on smoking because I was working. She pulls out this joint the size of your forearm. <laughs> yeah, and she's like, I mean, literally, you watch her smoke it. She's got to hold it with both hands. It was, and she's like, Dave, you want to hit this? And I'm like, normally I would say no, but you know, when when Joan Jett asks you if you want to smoke with her, <laughs> right, right, you smoke. Yep. So I might smoke that one. <laughs> right, but you know, the, getting back to it, the fact that you know, here's Joan Jett, who is, you know, her, she is no slouch in her own right. Her pedigree right. goes is massive you know and yep. for her to be scared about playing with the who just kind of tells you the influence that they had yeah um on everything so that band was all has always stuck out in in my mind yeah dude great what, what else we got we got uh honor among thieves yeah my favorite band Tell us about your favorite band, Honor Among Thieves. I started Honor Among Thieves. Are you uh, still playing? Yeah, we're still playing. We're actually okay. getting ready to record. All right. Uh, new lineup. But uh, I started the band. Let's see. Uh, i got to think of the timeline. So it's a bit of a story, but uh, I told you before, I played in the band Strain with my buddy Bruce. Uh-huh. And uh, at one point, Bruce was living on my couch. Strain had broken up, and we were going back and forth about what we were going to do next. And I had met uh, this girl named Roxy that uh, my friend Tim introduced introduced me to. And Tim is that friend that knows about every little band you've never heard of. Right. So Tim was always calling me up and dragging me out to see bands and see these bands that nobody knew or never heard of. And right. Half of them were great and half of them were, good thing I drank a lot. <laughs> but Roxy and I played in a band together and that went on and we'll, we can talk about that later. But um, So when that ended, uh, I didn't want to stop playing, but I hate more than anything going on auditions. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, if I start the band, I don't have to audition. Right. So that was, you know, the premise. Um, I started that, and I met Sebastian, the bass player, uh, and he and I went about rounding up the rest of this band. And one day we were sitting at Three of Cups, very drunk, um, and we had tried on a few names. One of the names we tried on, Eric, the guitar player, had wanted to name the band gain like guitar gain right right yes yeah and uh i think we had a couple of other names or whatever so we anyway we were sitting at three cups and we would just ask people as they walked in hey would you go see a band named gain (laughs) yeah and their reactions kind of told us that that was not going to be the name right and uh we came up with Honor Among Thieves. Sebastian will tell you that he came up with it, but it's not true. I did. Right. 
Um, because in the Pirates versus Ninja war, I always pick pirates. And Honor Among Thieves was an old pirate slang. You know, pirates don't beat up on other pirates. Pirates versus Ninja, that's a that's a war? Yeah, that's a thing. I don't know how far it goes, but I've heard it several times. You know, I might be dating myself. It might be that old. But hmm. but uh, I always prefer you? pirates to ninjas. What about you, Gabe? You like ninjas or pirates? I'm neutral on that. I don't have a favorite. Ben? <laughs> pirates. Yeah, there you go. I'm a ninja guy, guys. Yeah, see, I knew this was going to be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll be over at the octagon. Uh, right, she, this isn't so much a question. I mean, I know where this is going. Gabe and Ben isn't going to know where this is going. But she just wrote down Christmas tree. Christmas tree? Jeez, that could mean any number of things. I've she says that you always keep a Christmas tree up year-round in your apartment? Oh, yeah, because I'm lazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. Yeah, there's a picture floating around the Internet. Um, I know the exact picture that she's talking about, and there's a Christmas tree in the background. There's a little potted Christmas tree <laughs> uh, in the background, and it used to live in a box after Christmas. And I just, I got tired of putting it in the box. Yeah. So it just stays in the corner. So is it like a little, like, Charlie Brown Christmas tree? Or, or that's a little fake. I mean, it's not a real tree. But okay. it's just a little pot of tree um, my mom bought years ago. And when she moved, you know, my mom moved and I took over her apartment. And she left the tree. So it became yeah. my Christmas tree. And... If it weren't for the fact that I sometimes need the table space to, like, eat, the tree would be on the table. Right. So now it just sits back in the corner. So if I take any pictures from my couch, if I take, you know, I have a drum kit in my living room and I take pictures, or I do a video of myself playing or whatever, the Christmas tree is always in the background. <laughs> so. So people give you shit for that. I get a lot of shit about the Christmas tree. And you know what? Fuck it. I like it. I'm thinking about just doing the whole apartment in Christmas lights. I think you should. I, I think that is some good-looking stuff. See, thank you. There you go. All right. Speaking of drum sets, she's written down fancy drumsticks. Are, are you a fan of fancy, fancy drumsticks? Fancy drumsticks? I, no, I, I do have uh, my own stick. Um, what? I work with a company called uh, Cooper Groove. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a small startup drumstick manufacturer uh, run by a guy named Carlo Cooper. He's a great, he and I have become great friends. And uh, the sticks, they have grooves cut in the back of them, little hash marks, uh -huh. um, which people go, oh, it's a fad, but it actually relieves a lot of the shock from the stick and thus uh, uh, alleviates a lot of fatigue in the drummer's hands. Right. Um, so you play you play with a looser grip, and that way you have better feel and you move a little better around the kit, and so on. Do I have a pair here? I have a pair here. I broke them, but you know, I know it's a podcast, so the world can't see them, but you guys can. I can and, see that, yeah. Yeah. So they've got these little hash marks, and they kind of act like frets, also. So as you're changing your sticking, you always know where you are on the stick. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it allows the sweat to run off your hand. So 
I became so I, I loved the stick so much. I called Carla Cooper and I said, I, I need to be a part of this and I need to, uh, you know, I want to help you promote this and be a part of this. And so uh, we we created a, a, a Dave Brooks stick, a late night Dave stick. Did you give any to Ryan? And uh, I don't know if I gave Ryan any. I think I was supposed to. I might have. We had this conversation because I was trying to get Ryan to use them. Yeah. Or at least see <laughs> it if... It seems like it. See if he liked them. So we may have... You, I think I remember having this conversation with him. Yeah, you guys are always in the corner talking about drum stuff. I'm like, well, I'm not going over there. That's what drummers do. Don't feel yeah. bad. We see guitar players talking. We don't go near them. We're like... We're like, ah, they're over there talking about the latest stomp box or something. I don't talk about shop. I don't. Like, yeah, nobody knows my secrets. It's like, Dave. I usually stay away from guitar players. But yes. nobody want nobody wants to know the secrets. No, but this is actually a well known fact about you that nobody knows your secrets. That you... <laughs> That's not true. Sure, it is. Come on, man. <laughs> uh, 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 the way I look at it is, if, if they can get further with my shit than I have more power to him well, uh, well tell Ryan there's there's gonna be some uh, hopefully in the next few weeks there'll be some big news coming from Cooper Groove from me and okay. Cooper Groove alright good we, we, and that's you heard all, it here I, first everybody there you go I can't speak on it but it'll be big and drummers will love it okay sounds good can you speak on this pizza yeah what about it it, she just wrote down pizza. What, what about it? I mean, are we going to like have the New York-Chicago pizza war? Or, because you know who wins there. Yes, we do. You're right. You're right. You know. See, you, 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 you have excelled in one type of pizza, whereas here in Chicago we have a cornucopia of types of pizzas. Well, you need that. We only need oh. <laughs> He's a jacks of all trade, master of none. There you go. Oh, thank, listen thank to you, Ben Reiser thank over you, there. Ben. Thank in you, Madison. Yeah. Here in New ben, York. Ben, Ben's a New Yorker, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, we only need one kind of pizza. It's that good. And you know yeah. it is. It's pretty good, but uh, <laughs> then you guys ruin you ruin your curry with that Sicilian crap. So Oh stop uh, it. Oh you stop it. That is shit. And you know it. Never had the right Sicilian, apparently. I'm pretty sure. I, thank you, Ben. I was gonna say. All right, where should I be getting good Sicilian? I will next time you're in New York, I will take you to Spumoni Gardens. Spumoni Gardens. That's exactly what I was gonna say. In Brooklyn. You need yeah. to come to Brooklyn, Scott. I just don't know. I mean Bullshit. I Bullshit. <laughs> Bullshit. If Even, I'm going to New York, I'm not fucking around. Like this, yeah. You're going if you're going for pizza, you need to go to Brooklyn. It's either Spumoni Gardens or Defaras. Oh, Defaras got a great Sicilian too. Yeah. 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 I think this is what Justine had in mind when she wrote down pizza. Thanks a lot, Justine. <laughs> uh, and her last question, and this this is actually pretty good. Uh, right. What about the future of venues in New York City? Well, how do you, how do you feel about that? What do you think about that? Um. I would love to see a lot of venues come back uh, as long as the rent bubble, the real estate bubble has not burst. I, I don't know that it will. Yeah. That's really what's killing it is um, rents are astronomical. Right. And as neighborhoods change, you know, we've witnessed uh, the Lower East Side, which is this, you know, the mecca of New York rock and roll uh, and then NYU started buying up a lot of the property there 
and I mean, this is the direct reason Continental closed was because it, you know, he tried to make it as just a regular bar. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, he had to stop doing shows. The college kids, they weren't going to pay a cover. Right. You know, and pay inflated beer prices. Right. You know, we didn't care about the cost of beer. We were there for the show. Right. Um, and and he still had to make his rent. You know, during the pandemic, uh, Arlene's Grocery, a fantastic venue on the Lower East Side, they... We actually had held a fundraiser for them because they were in danger of closing just because, you know, while they were closed and had no shows, they still had twenty-five dollars or $30,000 a month rent right. to make. So um, rent has killed most of the venues. Uh, we all know the story behind CBGB's, which is not rent-related. Um most of the venue owners missed the boat and didn't buy the buildings when they had the opportunity to. Yeah, wow, yeah. And Rent ended up doing them in. Rent did in Trash Bar. You know, to the point where, as I understand it, you know, they tried to buy the building and made a, what I, you know, made a more than fair offer and it was turned down. Right. So, I don't know... You know, as venues open, as new venues open, you start to wonder about what their lifespan is going to be. You know, and then we saw when music moved from the Lower East Side, it kind of the scene kind of moved to Brooklyn to Williamsburg, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of those venues are gone now. You know, and now it's kind of moved. There are venues opening in Bushwick in the industrial section, and so on. Um, but there's also a lot of housing opening there and a lot of those old industrial buildings are being turned into lofts and stuff like that and how long can that sustain before those people right. start complaining about crowds and the kids and the noise so we'll see yeah but we, I mean it, it's not looking good or it's, life it, always finds a way a little of both you know uh, right now we're in the life always finds a way phase I think I think we'll see some new venues open up. Um, we'll see some of the ones, the older ones that are still around will excel, um, especially as uh, when things first reopened here, everybody went out, mm-hmm. like immediately. If you, mm-hmm. you, and uh, then Omicron popped up and people are kind of nervous about going out and venues are struggling again a little bit. Um, yeah. But I think if there's you know a lesson to be taken away from the pandemic, I think a lot of people learned just how much live music means to them. You know, it's one of those things like you don't realize how much you miss it until it's gone. Right. Um, so I think that will keep a lot of venues, uh, the current venues, open for a little while longer. Yeah, you know, and the cost of running a venue. I mean, I watched it. I watched my dad. You know, keep the doors open. People complain about the price of alcohol. Well, we got to keep the electricity on. Yeah. You know, and the bands want to get paid, and 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 they should. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, and they should. But at the same time, we got to keep the doors open. So you should come and see the bands so that we can do all this. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I always encourage people to go out and support their local scenes, see live music. Yeah, I, I'm afraid that. 
too many people are going to get comfortable with staying home. And, you know, this is this thing. This has been a big fear of mine. Um, and yeah. I, I talk about it a lot. Um, and it's one of the reasons that Honor Among Thieves does not do a lot of uh, of uh, streaming. Uh, streaming. Thank you. That's yeah. the word I was looking for. Yeah. <laughs> Where's that bottle of tequila? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, one of the reasons we don't do a lot of streaming is... Um, I don't want fans getting comfortable with flipping up in their laptop and watching the show. Right. I want them to come out to the show. Yeah. And it's also a reason um, that, you know, we make it a point to be on point and not just play what we feel is great music, but also deliver a show. So yeah. people are coming out for it, whether they're paying five bucks at Arlene's or... 500 bucks at the garden they're yep. they're paying for a show it's not called come watch me play my instrument nobody wants to see their next door neighbor on stage nobody wants to hear that you struggle to pay your rent like everybody else right <laughs> yeah <laughs> they want this was you know uh you know bands this is how bands succeed is you know that delicate line of being larger than life but not losing touch with your audience right you talked about a, a thousand bands today but you, you didn't mention anything about the misfits have, have you ever got a chance to see them back in the day uh yeah I, not back in the day um i saw them later and actually uh the first lineup of honor among thieves we toured with uh the jerry only misfits uh glenn was not with them uh, but we did tour with them for a little while. Uh, I get that's another back in the day band that I didn't get to see. Um, I think a lot of that I was hanging around uh, at that time. I was hanging around uh, the club, seeing a lot of the hardcore bands, Cro-Mags and um, and uh, that scene. That was a comfortable transition for you to go from the '70s punk to the '80s hardcore. Well, I grew up with us, so you know. Uh, a lot of people in that scene. Um, Chromax, I mentioned Chromax because Paris and I grew up together. We used to ride skateboards together when we were 12. Yeah. You know, and of course, we didn't figure it out until much later that, oh, <sighs> you are that kid that knocked me off of the homemade ramp that we built out of two by fours, <laughs> you know, and so on. Uh, but I, what, I used to work in a skateboard shop. I guess I was 15 or so, and Paris used to come in and we figured it out. So, but, uh, that you know i'd known a lot of guys from that scene so it was an easy transition yeah for me and i i like i will admit i like you know in the 80s i liked a lot of the hair bands i didn't like going to see a lot of the hair bands mm -hmm. why is that i don't know did i like the music i just didn't like the whole spandex and the teased hair um <laughs> And I think, you know, especially, you know, being a black kid from New York, I absolutely could not relate to that. Right. At all. Um, and somebody had asked, uh, I think it was Paris that said, you know, uh, we had done it, we had done an interview in LA. We'd bumped into each other at the NAMM show, and somebody had asked the difference between New York bands and LA bands. And Paris said, uh, L.A. bands are victims and New York bands are perpetrators. <laughs> and that's, so. New York is kind of a 
uh, it's not a paparazzi town. You know, so people are a little less on guard, and artists, you know, are kind of happy they're hanging there's so much to do that they're hanging out and right. having a good time you can't run around shoving cameras in people's faces here you get your lights punched out so it's very easy you know to walk up to artists and a lot of artists live here at least part of the time so it's not uncommon to see them in their in a more relaxed state you know we used to hang out in a bar on the west side near the Beacon Theater uh, called McGowan's back in the 80s and Keith Richards and Ron Wood used to hang out there. Ron Wood had a townhouse around the corner. And it was an old man bar. And, you know, we were the asshole kids that hung out in the back and were troublemakers. And they hung out there because nobody knew who they were. You know, they right. day drinking with, with old drunks. And you could talk to them as long as you didn't talk about the Rolling Stones. <laughs> were they hanging out with John Belushi? So... Um, it wasn't uncommon to see him around. I mean, you know, we were kids. I think I was in high school. He died in, what, 80, 81, 82? Sounds right, yeah. Something like that. So I was I was still in, I just graduated high school. So now we all know how old I am. But uh, <laughs> um, as if you didn't figure it out from seeing Led Zeppelin. <laughs> no one's but, doing math here, Dave. So it's okay. There's always someone doing math. I don't care. Yeah. I don't. Did we, did we get to hear the story about how you and Scott met about how scott and I, scott and i know each other through justine um what might be the first meeting uh justine and i used to work together at trash bar um so we've always been uh tight friends and whatever and when her and scott got together it was just natural scott was around and hanging out and he was a musician and musicians gravitate towards other musicians you know right away and uh I'm, you see me like burning the oil here. I'm trying to figure out when was the actual first meeting. <laughs> I don't remember it, either. Neither, it's fine. Neither do I. It's got nothing to do with anything. <laughs> but, but uh, it was like, oh, this guy Dave Brooks. You got to meet him. I was like, oh, I'm pretty sure I met this guy yeah. before, but I can't really tell. Yeah, and, it, and it's possible we might have, but you know, the friendship was pretty was struck up immediately. Um, again, like I said before, we bonded over music. And that's a pretty strong bond. Yeah. But the most important thing, the most important thing is that we are all right fucking here, right fucking now, at a fucking rock and roll show in New York fucking city at Arlene's Grocery. And I gotta tell you, it feels so good to be home. Crash while you burn Save your spot 